If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your direct support to be able to continue producing these episodes this entire year. So if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.com support. We are continuing to offer our Green Dreamer planners made with recycled materials and created to support our holistic well-being, and that you can find in our fundraising shop at greendreamer.com shop. Finally, I wanted to share that I just launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which will be more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you'll be able to call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we first talked about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations or even bring multiple people in with contrasting views to help us further expand our learnings. For more information on that and to share your suggestions on what you would want to hear, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Dr. John Hausdorfer. And all of our beauty as perceiving and caring beings, the ability to perceive complexity and build resilience through caring, what a beautiful opportunity to express ourselves as a species that this climate crisis raises if we instead choose to reduce ourselves to bodies that consume bodies that no longer think about or care about the violent impacts. That is a spiritual violence we're doing to ourselves. Dr. John is an author and teacher from Crested Butt, Colorado, where he serves as the Dean of the Clark School of Environment and Sustainability at Western Colorado University. Some of his past books include Wildness, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be?, and Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations, which he recently co-edited and published with Robin Wall Kimmer and Gary Van Horn. We begin here as Dr. John shares about the inspirations that led him to this question, which continues to guide him. What kind of ancestor do you want to be? I have always wondered, at first, in a more egocentric way, how I'll be remembered. (laughs) You know, Mm. my father died at a young age and he was a great father, but not an intellectual, not an author, not a creative in any way. And so um, he didn't leave much behind other than his values through his children, which is a lot. But I always reflected on that. I wish I had something from his heart and mind to wrestle with, contemplate. And so, you know, I have that consciousness with my children. So I'm an environmental philosopher who specifically thinks about what do social justice movements from diverse cultural communities have to say to the conservation movement and how can the conservation movement be unsettled in a healthy way by diverse social justice perspectives, given that this, you know, conservation movement's been pretty culturally privileged in a lot of ways. And so for me, I had a project in about a decade ago, and I was looking at the great 
conservationist philosopher Aldo Leopold and his classic land ethic. And I had this question, how, how would the land ethic be complicated and complemented and stretched from the perspective of social justice leaders? And so I did a bit of a tour. I visited with Vandana Shiva in India. I visited with Devon Pena in Southern Colorado. I visited with Winona LaDuke in Minnesota to talk about Leopold's land ethic with them and to see what environmental justice movements have to, to say in challenging or, or even praising the land ethic. And so I ended up on Winona LaDuke's White Earth Reservation in Minnesota, and she's just incredibly influenced by her community. And she had me go on her back deck and meet with sort of a Medewin Lodge leader from her community. And I had my clever academic question about Leopold and environmental justice, and he looked right through me. And he said, well, the only question that matters is what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Mm. Yeah. And that really hit home for me. In that moment, I dropped the Leopold Project and began wrestling from the spirit with this question. And Kamea, what I've learned in time, and I'm still humbled by it, is that a couple of things have to happen for me to wrestle with this question, what kind of ancestry do you want to be? First of all, I have to ask myself, who are my ancestors? For me to answer this question individually, like John Hausdorfer thinking about how John Hausdorfer's great grandkids will talk about him when he's a crumbling photograph on the wall. Mm -hmm. For me to think of the question in that egocentric way would be to perpetuate the very problem I'm trying to take on of individualism. And so I've learned that. First of all, I can't be the one answering the question. I have to be the one asking the question and honoring this gentleman, Michael Dahl, who asked it of me, who had seen it on his sister's Facebook page, mm. <laughs> just to de-romanticize the scene a bit. And it's a question that comes from Turtle Island going way back. And so I knew in the project I needed to gather co-editors who represented diverse communities. So Catherine Kasuth Cummings, Brooke Perry Heck from the, the Center of Humans and Nature, they bring together authors from all over the world from many cultural backgrounds. And Melissa Nelson, an indigenous scholar and activist who really can could enliven the fact that this is an indigenous question, specifically from Turtle Island. And so we've brought together about 40 authors from about 20 different self-identified global cultures and didn't ask them to answer the question. We asked them to wrestle with the question. And so that was one, was recognizing that I had to surround myself with people who have experienced life from very different bodies, who think about ancestry from very different social positions and power relationships, to decenter myself and, and become a listener rather than an author. And that's been incredibly humbling. The second thing is that I had to start asking not only to whom must this question be posed, but to what extent is the greater than human world also my ancestor? You know, and so in addition to unsettling my privileged worldview with this question by bringing together diverse authors and editors, I had to bring in authors who have an ecological understanding, an ecological lens, either from traditional ecological knowledge in indigenous communities and or some or both like Robin Wall Kimmerer from modern ecological science to help us hear from tree persons and deer persons and microbial persons and fungal persons ideas on what kind of ancestry we want to be. And so this project just blew up, Kamea. You know, it started out like hard enough, right? Hard enough for me, John, to think about how do I want to be remembered by my grandkids. But then when you expand the sphere of the self out across diverse fellow humans and then out into the more than human world and then say, these are all my elders. These are all my teachers. Um, these are all my ancestors. What kind of ancestor do I want to be? It's, it's become a very humbling project. Hmm. And the question of what kind of ancestor 
do you want to be? There is a similar question often posed within the dominant culture, which is what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? <laughs> and the earlier question you shared in the beginning of how do I want to be remembered? It's, it's sort of like this, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? And they, of course, can be interpreted in similar ways. And I acknowledge that everyone approaches that question differently. So there is no right or wrong answer. But I wonder if you've thought about how these questions might orient us towards different values and focuses and who or what relationships are being centered. I love that distinction and challenge. So as a dean, I work a lot in development. Part of my job is fundraising to free students from debt, right? And so I'm also often talking with donors about legacy and I've changed, I've stopped using that word because you're absolutely right. That is attached to ego and the desire to imprint one's mind on the world beyond death, which I think is a dangerous impulse. You know, I held, I recently held a, a conversation with a group called the Conscious Elders in Palo Alto, California. And a woman who showed up uh, had just come from doing her will with her husband and lawyer <laughs> to our ancestor conversation. And, you know, talk about a moment of wrestling with legacy. And what was cool was she said, in that meeting she just come out of, and this is very Silicon Valley, she had talked her husband out of setting money aside to freeze his brain so he can someday become AI, <laughs> right? Like, I, I realized I was no longer in the Colorado Rockies in that moment. <laughs> and she convinced him to reinvest that into buying land so they can teach their children how to steward a piece of land. And I think that's the difference between legacy and ancestor, right? Because the children are going to have to learn from the soil and the trees and the wildlife and the flora and the fauna and the shifting climate and build a sort of regenerative practice that is not about them, right? But about the relationship with land. And to me, ancestry is about relationship, whereas legacy is about self-expression. When I was on the White Earth Reservation and really listening to Michael Dahl, who posed this question to me, what he was getting at was his most important ancestor was wild rice. You know, and what he was saying was that the wild rice teaches him how to live in every way. Wild rice is part of his cosmology because in their legends, a leader had a dream that told him to move the people west until they arrived at the food that grew on the water, right? It's part of their cosmology, therefore. It's part of their diet, right? Um, it's a, a superfood. It's part of their economy in, in, in selling it. On the roadside, it enhances a pretty impoverished community. It's part of their ecological relationship because by going out there in their canoes, he says they groom the lake and help germinate and re-enliven the rice. So they're almost like a healthy disturbance if you think about resilience theory, right? Suddenly you have humans in the role of a low-intensity disturbance that's healthy for the ecosystem. So in all of these ways, he looked at me and, and said, you know, I am not Anishinaabe without wild rice in my stomach during the wild ricing moon in September. And to me, what that's telling me is, what kind of ancestor do you want to be, Kamea, is measured by the land. It's not measured by whether or not your great-grandkid remembers you. It's not even, it doesn't even matter if you have great-grandkids. That's pretty heteronormative and patriarchal, right? It, it's measured by whether or not you set in motion a system of values whether or not you set in motion communities that allow for people of the future to still have wild rice in their stomach during this wild ricing moon in September. And so I think the, the better way of asking and a less abstract and more place-based way of asking what kind of ancestor do you want to be is to ask, what is my rice? What is my version of Michael Dahl's wild rice? That allows for the land to be both the barometer of our behavior as ancestors, have we behaved in a way that allows for there to be wild rice in the future? And so, for example, the economic benefits are being challenged because, you know, corporations have tried to patent wild rice and found ways to grow it on ponds in California and sell it for cheap with wild rice slapped on the box, right? And so are they losing their customer base? And how is that adding to their poverty? Climate change, acid rain are threatening the window of ecological help necessary to have wild rice. And so, you know, there are the, the land, whether or not there's rice is a barometer, not how you're remembered, but literally the land itself is a barometer for 
how you've lived as an ancestor. And then the land is also an elder and an ancestor teaching you and reminding you of ancestral instructions for how to live on the land. And a challenge for me as a you know, privileged white male who's descended from transient people is, do I have that kind of connection to read the land in terms of how I am as an ancestor? Is it misappropriation of Michael's indigenous story for me to even try? Right. And so I think all, everyone listening, depending on their cultural background, has to not only wrestle with what kind of ancestry they want to be and not only wrestle with how do diverse cultures, how does the greater than human community challenge us on that question. We also have to wrestle with what is our rice and then wrestle with, <laughs> given our cultural position, are we even capable of asking that question? Hmm. I would love to go deeper into what we measure and what we value. So in terms of recognizing our need to pose a question like what kind of ancestor do we want to be for our future generations, it is of course helpful to situate that within the multi-layered socio-ecological crises that we are facing today. So we might better understand how to translate our answers to that question into how we show up and what we do. And people often talk about systemic injustices, historical warfare, or domination between communities and so forth when trying to pinpoint the deeper roots of our crises. And you've named a, a spiritual violence that has taken place, which is tethered to and maybe even underlies the other forms of systemic violence. So can you speak more to what you mean by a spiritual violence in how it might have shifted how we conceptualize value and therefore how we define something like societal progress and advancement in the system. You bet. And obviously, like anyone listening, I'm deeply concerned about physical violence. I'm deeply concerned about a, a third of bird species that were around when I was born now gone. I'm concerned about a billion people living below a dollar a day who emit very little carbon being displaced by and even killed by climate change, deeply concerned with those physical systems of violence emerging from the climate crisis. But for me, or and for me, my focus is on the spiritual violence that happens to those of us who are asked to define happiness through consumption. I think it reduces the spirit and redefines humans as bodies that consume bodies. That not only perpetuates the physical violence, because it causes us to forget our spiritual bond and removes us from the opportunity to take moral responsibility for each other, but it also it, it hurts the spirit. It hurts one's own spirit. In pursuing happiness through consumption, one is doing violence to one's own spirit by reducing oneself and all of our beauty as perceiving and caring beings, the ability to perceive complexity and build resilience through caring. What a beautiful opportunity to express ourselves as a species that this climate crisis raises if we instead choose to reduce ourselves to bodies that consume bodies that no longer think about or care about the violent impacts. That is a spiritual violence we're doing to ourselves. Mm. And so this ancestor question is trying to reawaken a spiritual concern for ourselves, as well as whether or not Michael Dahl's great-grandkids have wild rice in their stomach. Absolutely. And what I've come to learn is that diversity and complexity are what lend themselves to collective resilience. Mm. So when we have this sort of spiritual violence where we are incentivized to simplify complexity and simplify everything into commodities that can be bought and sold, that directly leads to the compromising of our collective immunity and our collective well-being, and therefore the sixth mass extinction and climate change. Well put. I love, I love the way it's an important framework that you share there with like the danger of simplifying complexity. And yet, as you mentioned, resilience emerges from a diverse system. You look at Vandana Shiva, who I interview in the Kinship Collection, and she has an essay in both Wildness and Ancestor, you know, and, and her organization is called Navdanya, which means nine seeds. And that's a diverse combination of seeds such that no matter what's happening in climate change, whether it's drought or flood, something's growing. 
And, and I think the resilience from diversity of those nine seeds is a great lesson for us as a human community. You know, the more diverse voices we bring together around how to be a good ancestor, yeah, it can be unsettling and having to, in that it holds up a mirror to uh, the privilege of someone like myself. But in that act of being unsettled, disturbance leads to resilience if one adapts, right? And so there's a really interesting example I want to share with you from the Ancestor book, if I may. Go for Would it. Would that be okay? Absolutely. So in an essay by Kaylena Bray, who comes from the Northeast, who is a um, the Seneca, she talks about corn and corn as an ancestor. And, and you think about the diversity of kinds of corn that have lent to their resilience. And for her in this region, it's incredible what corn and, and the continued awakening of her cultural community not only teaches her how corn's her ancestor, but in having her in this book, she and her, the corn of, of her community is an ancestor to me. And I'll share a passage from her. She says, the ancestral lineage carried through seeds has become a tangible reminder for me of what it means to be an ancestor. The grandfather Podcorn was given its name for a reason. It acts as an ancestral grandfather. It is a source of strength and resilience that carries its influence in unknown and lasting ways and watches protectively. I'm like, okay, how's, this is John. I'm like, how's corn protective? Like, what is that? And it's really cool what she says. I feel a similar source of influence from the corn I grew up eating, Oneogon. And it strikes me how unknowingly yet persistently I've had this connection my entire life. To this day, when I eat white corn in soups or boiled bread, I think of what life must have been like for my ancestors and the strength and resilience needed for this corn to be here. I think of the French expedition of 1687, where they burned half a million bushels of white corn in a raid designated to wipe out the Haudenosaunee people at Ganagro, present-day New York. Despite these attempts, we are still here. And the corn is still here. There is a sign displayed prominently in the seed house of this extensive and ancient corn collection. It is a framed photo of corn cobs and imprinted seeds that reads, They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Mm. I have chills listening to that. I remember that quote. I didn't know where it came from, but that has stuck with me as well. And I really appreciate you reading this passage and definitely encourage our listeners to check out the full volume as well, as well as the many other volumes that you have co-edited, which we will talk more about here and link to within our show notes. And earlier you raised this question of inviting us to think about what is our rice Something that really stuck with me from what you've shared before is that we are not earthlings. We are placelings. I don't think we evolved a conscience for global scale problems. I think we can participate in global solutions to how we evolve, which is probably on the watershed scale, the bioregional scale, end quote. And this has really resonated with me because I've been drawn to this idea of realigning our cultures and economies with ecology, which necessarily has to be place-based because the traits, cycles, and laws of the land, if you will, is different in every bioregion. And I almost wonder if the creation of this binary of culture and ecology is akin to the binary of man and nature in that man is a part of Earth. So the constructed binary created this psychological separation just as much as every ecosystem has its unique cultures that our dominant cultures have just become misaligned with. What comes to mind for you here and what else can you share about this idea of seeing ourselves as placelings? Well, I think you're getting back to the spiritual violence. And in this case, it's not so much the spiritual violence of consumption, but the spiritual violence of being detached from the, how do I put it, the ecological sustenance of our identity. So, for example, when I think about my rice, or in, in the case of Bray, who I just read from, my corn, it's my version of that. In, in what way is the land an ancestor of mine, both teaching me how to live as a placeling and 
showing me whether or not I'm doing a good job. For me, it's snowpack. I'm talking to you right now for from an apartment at 9,000 feet above sea level in the, the mountains of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. I'm surrounded by a fresh snowstorm, but we're in a very dangerous drought. And snowpack is the basis of our recreational tourist economy, the basis of our ranching economy, whether or not students come to our destination college, the basis of our ecological health as we face forest fires and beetle kill and things of that nature. And the snow of the Rockies is the source of water necessary for everything from riparian ecosystems all through the West to the water access of the, of, of the Hopi in the Southwest, the Zuni, and whether or not the Colorado River reaches the people of Mexico, whether or not poor folks in Phoenix and Las Vegas and LA have access to water and economic opportunity through um, the agricultural industry in the West. All of that starts with this snowpack. And by the way, I love to dance down that snow on my skis every day. <laughs> and I learned that from my grandpa. So for me, just snow connects me to my ancestors, my grandfather, my daughters, who I will ski with this evening, as well as a measurement for how I'm addressing climate change, whether or not my life is responsible and in solidarity with Hopi, Mexican, riparian species, et cetera, snowpack is my rice. And so that may, that's what defines me as a placeling. And it's really important that I make the distinction of placeling versus, as some might say, becoming native to place. I think as, as white folks, we have to not use that term. Becoming indigenous to place, I think that's problematic. But becoming a placeling, it comes from the joy of finding your rice. Like Michael Dahl loves watching his kid roll around the rice on the garage floor while he's cooking it and how it brings his family together. I love teaching my kids how to ski. It also, that snow also calls me out on how I'm addressing climate change. And, and once you discover that, your snow, your corn, your rice, now you have a sense of cultural identity. It's no longer just United Nations climate data, data giving you a guilt trip that's driving your activism. By the way, guilt is an unsustainable fuel for activism. It's something joyful that makes you who you are as a placeling that pushes you to act every day. That's what the environmental movement is missing, a joy-based, identity-centered reason to act, rooted in place. So that's what I mean by placeling. Mm. I've really come to see our climate crisis and also our sixth mass extinction as being rooted in this severance of place-based community and place-based relationships. Because mm. when a lot of our food systems, fiber systems, or any other production systems have no relation with place, they become extremely resource and labor intensive just to upkeep. Yeah. And so for me personally, it's baffling when the elite discourses on climate action continue to view indigenous rights, sovereignty, and biocultural knowledge as a separate cause, and even prop up solutions that may perpetuate the same sort of new frontier ideology that caused a lot of the problems to begin with. So I wonder how you would explain to someone who has largely been influenced by the dominant, maybe colonial-minded narratives that push for one-size-fits-all solutions or center these reductive ecological impact assessments of water use, land use, and so forth that treat Earth's diverse systems as if they're all homogenous. So in other words, what I'm trying to get at is when the solutions proposed to heal our Earth either maintain this new frontier ideology or neglect the place-based relational aspect. Well, I'm going to recommend a book. Michael Mendez has written a book called Climate Change from the Streets, in which he analyzes exactly this. It's, it's such an important book through Yale University Press in 2020. I'll say a couple quick things. One is I'm really glad you brought up New Frontier, because the alternative to the frontier mind is being a placeling. The frontier ideology is one that suggests, A, land is available and free for the taking instead of someone's homeland. And B, one does not need to live carefully in place because if one overuses one's place, there's always another place to go to. So whether we're talking about 17th century tobacco farming in Virginia, in which the average field was aged out forever every three years, and, and 
colonists had to move west and, and cause Indian wars. Or if we're talking about the Iraq War of 2003, in which our level of consumption and not caring for our place required war in the Middle East, the frontier idea continues. We're seeing that now with the moon being called the eighth continent because folks are seeing it as a natural resource to be exploited or even mining asteroids. It's very troubling seeing the colonization of space, not so much because I care about space, I do, but more about because it's perpetuating a very spiritually violent idea within us, the frontier notion that we ultimately don't need to care for our place because there's another frontier. In Michael Mendez's book, what he looks at is how these climate solutions you're referring to, it's about scale for him. If you, if you locate the climate problem and climate solutions at the global scale, Mendez argues, then what ends up happening is you target a few greenhouse gases through things like carbon offsets, which in many ways perpetuate the removal of indigenous people from their land and close to slave labor and planting trees that are used that are dead in 20 years, you know, or cap and trade, which allows corporations while addressing CO2 allows them to still pollute locally with other chemicals affecting communities of color living around power plants. And so those global scaled, according to Michael Mendez, those global scaled environmental uh, climate solutions are actually perpetuating localized environmental injustice. So he said, if we just shrink the scale down to the neighborhood, you mentioned, the, you quoted me on the watershed. Mendez is bringing it down to the neighborhood around the power plant. Now, suddenly, you're democratizing and bringing more voices from those neighborhoods to the table, not just corporate and, and nation-state voices on CO2 reductions, but you're bringing local communities to the table, democratically demanding a change in, say, 30 chemicals rather than just CO2. And so you not only do you get a revolution in the scale of how we address climate change, and, and not only do you get a revolution in protecting bodies and communities of color, you're also getting a, re a revolution in local democracy, Kamea. It's a great opportunity to ch if we just change the scale, back to placeling, right? I really love that reframing because it really helps us to reawaken to the power that we have and the agency that we need to reclaim in this work of collective healing, rather than pointing to a few things that are very far away that we're sort of just screaming at. We can sort of realize that we have very tangible roles that we can play, especially starting with rebuilding relationships with right where we are. And Another thing is the idea of the wild is another that you have explored. And I think it helps us to deepen our understanding of relationships with place through another lens. So in the preface of your book, Wildness, it reads, whether referring to a place, a non-human animal or plant or a state of mind, wild indicates autonomy and agency, a will to be a unique expression of life. Yet two contrasting ideas about wild nature permeate contemporary discussions, either that nature is most wild in the absence of a defiling human presence, or that nature is completely humanized and nothing is truly wild. Wildness, the book, charts a different path, exploring how people can become attuned to the wild community of life and also contribute to the well-being of the wild places in which we live, work, and play, end quote. In my past conversations with Mark David Spence of Dispossessing the Wilderness or with Farmer Rishi of Sarvodaya Institute, the points that they raised led me to question if the idea of wild is in of itself a colonial construct, much like the word nature, which in its very definition is essentially every being other than human, a word which as I've learned, doesn't even exist in a lot of indigenous languages. So I wonder if you see even framing the goal as learning to live with the wild as perpetuating this disassociation, or if you're conceptualizing the wild in entirely different ways altogether. Yes and no. Your concern is exactly why uh, Gavin Van Horn was my co-author and co-editor there. Gavin and I are now working with Robin Wall Kimmer, and we've put out this collection called Kinship. Kinship is almost like the sequel to Wildness, where we've rethought some of what you just said. That said, when we did Wildness, we were well aware of these concerns. Wildness has been a tool of colonialism from the beginning. What would it be like to have one's homeland 
intelligently and intricately shaped and cultivated over millennia back to the dawn of time, what would it be like to have that homeland called wilderness? And the second one's homeland is called wilderness. It's free for the taking because it's not seen as owned. And so wilderness justifies theft as not theft. It justifies displacement as not displacement because it doesn't see indigenous peoples as having a right to that land. So it is absolutely a tool of colonialism. We included Enrique Salmon's essay in this book, in which uh, he's a Tarahumaran Murray from Copper Canyon, Mexico, um, author and thinker. And he opens by saying, there's no word for wild in my language. You know? And for mm-hmm. him, he talks about how, in fact, his people are a keystone species on the land. Right? Through, through the uh, perpetuation of their livelihood, they're generating biodiversity. And, you know, the preservation of wilderness is an insult to the innovative invention of the human place in the world emerging from the Tarahumaran people. And so, yes, 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 wildness is an incredibly troubling concept. That said, this wilderness debate goes back to the 80s. Environmental justice movements and geographers and sociologists have been critiquing wilderness ideology for the reasons I just mentioned now for 30 years almost 40 years. And I agree with those concerns. That said, I was finding on the left a division where there could be solidarity. What would a movement look like that brought together a common set of values between those who are in the working lands movement and those who are in the environmental justice movement and those who are in the wilderness movement? That's a pretty unstoppable force in an age in which A, Rome is burning, and B, the left is sometimes divided. And so we wanted to reclaim, with a lot of indigenous voices in this book, by the way, reclaim and offer the opportunity for Black authors, Latinx authors, international authors from India, indigenous authors from across Turtle Island to reclaim and redefine that term wildness. And what it came down to was I asked Enrique Salmon in a a video, a, a documentary interview, what would it mean to reclaim the W word, if you will? And he said, well, that would mean wildness being the moment of becoming a keystone species. Mm. Right. And so there's an opportunity to see it gets back to the spiritual violence. You know, our mind is made less wild when we're asked to just consume. And by wild, I mean our creativity. You look, uh, one of the authors in here is from the south side of Chicago, Michael Howard. You know, he cleaned up a lead contaminated piece of land and dump and transformed it into Eden Place. People should Google Eden Place, a place that restored the prairie, that brought red-tailed hawks and coyotes into an African-American community of Fuller Park so children could experience wildness. But when you hear Michael talk, he says the most important part of Eden Place is for those members of his community who say, we left the South because of what happened to our ancestors in the wild, He says it gives them a chance, a safe space to reconnect with the power of a world not completely controlled by humans. Mm. And for him, he calls that a cultural healing that goes with the healing of the land, an opportunity to heal from cultural trauma that goes with healing the land from its lead contaminated trauma. And he's, he's a great black leader in the Fuller Park community who really sees that wildness opportunity to make it about the wild imagination of the Fuller Park community reinvent the health of their land in that neighborhood, right? And so it's that agency, it's that freedom to design your community from the ground up as you see fit, rather than just trying to catch up in a consumer society that's violent to everyone. Yeah. So I guess whether people use the word wildness or not, I think there is this deeper shared value of wanting to be able to express our intrinsic desires to be fully ourselves with agency, with our creativity, and to really show up as who we are and who we yearn to be. And 
I realize that I ask a lot of questions with no right answers. I just enjoy talking mm-hmm. and thinking through them with brilliant people I look up to as yourself. Yeah, that's great. Uh, given that Wild indicates autonomy and agency, a will to be a unique expression of life, I wonder, and I say this delicately, but I can see some saying that colonization is the wildness of the colonizer fully expressed, unleashed, and unrestrained, where they're acting without rule, acting <laughs> while neglecting the laws of yeah. the land, and acting with a disregard of the treaties and trust established between communities. I just want to sort of toss this out there open-endedly and see where you might take this. Absolutely. And, and that, that is brilliant. Such a brilliant challenge to the term because that's the violence of privilege is who gets to express themselves and who's the victim of that person's self-expression. And you could absolutely map out the violent history of colonialism as the um, unjust and violent expression of the autonomy of a very limited group of humans who don't have to think about their moral responsibility to the other because the other has been othered and called wild, by the way, right? And so that's why, one, the Wildness book invited majority, uh, minority authors. Settler colonial thinkers are in the minority in the book. And two, we, we evolved. We decided we don't want to reclaim the word. And we've replaced it with the term kinship. And that's why we've worked with Robin Wall Kimmer to put out the new collection called Kinship. And so if you look at that quote from our intro to wildness and think about it, replace wild with kinship each time, I think that shows the, the maturing of the conversation, I hope. And we can talk about kinship and, and how that's a maturing that emerges from the critique of wildness. I just want to say I really appreciated diving into your work because I found that they stirred up a lot of questions within me that I don't even know how to properly articulate. It just like sparked deeper curiosities within me. So I'll do my best to try to have this make sense. But I think when a lot of people think of wild, it's understood as untamed, not under oppressive control that might subvert their agency and again with the freedom to express and be however they want to be. But in my observation of what people might think of as wild nature, it's not completely ruleless. It's almost as if there's a constant balance of competition and cooperation, mm-hmm. a constant dynamic where every being and element is taming one another so that ultimately they fit in better as part of the greater community. And perhaps this speaks to the intricate balance between understanding ourselves as individuals while being in relation with our broader collectives. But I'm curious to hear you deconstruct or add to this train of thought on the idea of wildness, kinship, and the forces that still shape and tame what that ends up looking like. I want to add one thing. I want to add one thing that you're helping me remember. I have moved on from wanting to call that regenerative process wildness. We now call it kinship. And in fact, in my 2008 book, Catlin's Lament, the last chapter I call The Trouble with Nature, because automatically nature is a, a colonialist concept of a place without humans, which justifies removal, right? And separates us. And so then I moved from nature and wilderness to wildness as the self-renewal process. And I've now moved with Gavin and Robin from wildness to, to kinship. And once we can see that kinship, once we can see the per- like the city of Toledo, Ohio, recognizes the personhood of Lake Erie, and Lake Erie can now sue a polluter. Once we recognize the personhood of the, the more than human world, and by the way, a person is anything that pursues its own good in its own way. So we can have maple persons and lake persons and microbial persons and human persons. Once we have this shared vision of the personhood, the equal personhood of all cultures and all beings and systems, then from that personhood, we can build kinship across cultures and across species. And through that kinship, legally and ethically demand that the personhood of all beings and systems is is respected. And that's quite a counterpoint to capitalism. And it demands that all beings are respected as ancestors. And so we've brought kinship in to grow the wildness project and just take out the problematic term. Yeah. 
Well, we are all continually deepening our awareness, so we really appreciate you sharing your reflections on the learnings that you've been through. And yeah. drawing upon the work of Dr. Bio Akomolafe, I've come to see the climate crisis as our Earth self giving this message that they have their own agency and that the laws of the land cannot be outsmarted and demands that we humble our egos and listen more deeply. So for you, from co-editing Kinship, which includes the contributions from so many authors I really look up to as teachers, how have you shifted the ways that you understand or look at climate change and where we might turn to for the answers? I want to be you know, cautious as a white dude not to go back to like the 70s and Mother Earth. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's, it's you know, problematic in, in, in seeing the land as gendered because that's tied into histories of domination of land and women at the same time. I will, however, say that the Kinship Project has helped me see land as family. So in my essay in the Kinship Collection, for example, and this has to do with climate change, I have I've sort of long ago, my family and I bought up an old mining claim that we've been restoring and put a yurt on it. And we were, I was one solstice eve, I was skiing around the land and solstice has the longest it's the shortest day but the longest sunset because the sun is at the lowest angle and your your pupils expand slowly but surely for the longest time out of any other night of the year so as your pupils are expanding as slowly as possible and the sun's angle is as low as possible that twilight is the longest twilight even though it's the shortest day and i was just out there and everything turned purple off the snow and the trees and I came along this grove of Douglas fir trees. And Richard Powers, one of the authors in Kinship, points out that Douglas fir trees share 25% of DNA with humans. I'm like, okay, there's definitely a kinship there genetically. But there's more to it than that. Because when you learn how Doug fir trees function in their community, they're all connected by fungal networks underneath the soil. And when an elder... Doug fir tree dies, it sends all of its nutrients into the system to help all the other Doug fir trees, to help the soil for other species. And that makes the Douglas fir tree a great ancestor. It's teaching me how to become an elder as I push 50. It's teaching me about generosity within a system. It's teaching me how to be a good ancestor. And that only comes from kinship. And as the snowpack is being threatened, my opportunity to connect in that way on a winter night is threatened. As temperatures warm, the pine and the spruce in that community are threatened by pine beetles and spruce beetles threatening the health of the forest around the Doug fir. And so it's like this kinship is sort of like the, what is your rice question being snowpack for me, but then the kinship with the tree that the snowpack brought me to is not only showing me a new elder to learn from, it's giving me yet another personal and playful reason to keep fighting because it's about family. It's about another person who's in my family, that Doug Fir. My kids, you know, the settler colonialist loggers and miners who cut the original generation of those Doug Fir trees left behind stumps, some of which are shaped like thrones. And my daughters, when they were four and five, called them fairy thrones and would sit in them. And they love that forest because of that. These are family members, these trees. And it makes it more joyful to fight for them. Mm. I sort of challenge the binary between selfishness and selflessness, because for <laughs> me, it's about how one defines the self. And I think mm. this is really an invitation to broaden our sense of self and community and who we understand to be our relatives and family. So mm. even if one were to be self-centered, if we took on a more holistic sense of the self, then in essence, we are acting selfishly and selflessly at the same time. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. And you know what? I mean, isn't that the ultimate aspiration of kinship, that everything is part of an ever-expanding humble self? Not consumed by a territorial self, right? Because settler colonial cultures have written the self onto the land. But I, like, I know what you mean. And there was a, a, you know, a Scandinavian philosopher, Arne Ness, who, who called that deep ecology, and he called it self-realization, that we not only intellectually realize what you just said, we realize that the self is everything once we understand ecology, but we also realize in terms of like real hyphen eyes, we make real through our activism that larger self 
so he, he at the age of 80, he went to jail for chaining himself to a dam because he, he thought the river was an extension of himself. Mm. He wasn't protesting for a river. He was protecting the larger self. And he made real that self. He didn't just realize it was part of his self. He made real that larger self through activism. So he's like double meaning to, real, to self-realization. It's both the expansion of the self into all things being part of the self and also the fight to make that self more real every day. Yeah, really beautiful example and something that I will continue to meditate on. And the last thing is, as a teacher, one of your hard to stick to rules you set for yourself is to not pose questions to which you know the answer. And you note, when (laughs) students sense that the teacher knows the answer, they freeze up or unnecessarily compete against each other in a game of guess what the teacher is thinking. But when no one, including the teacher in the room, knows the answer to the question, then authentic conversation emerges, end quote. I often like to close out in ways that open some loops for our listeners so that these conversations can stay with them and as a reminder for us to maintain our senses of humility and curiosity. So with that, what has been one of those questions you've raised that you may still be pondering today? And what has stuck with you from the conversations that emerged from leaning into the inquiry with your students? I think it's what is your rice. A, because every student I listen to has a very different kind of answer. For some students, it's something physical. Like I, for me, it was snowpack, right? But for other students, you'll hear them say something like democracy or feminism is a process for them. Their rice is a process. Yet for others, it's a memory. You know, my rice is the day my grandmother taught me how to throw a spiral with a football and it keeps me outside and active with my kids when I remember that. And so there's these different kinds of answers and they keep stretching me that there's more to that question than I originally thought. And secondly, every time I pose it, I have to look in the mirror and ask as, you know, a white settler colonial descendant, can I even be asking this question given I don't have Michael's indigenous connection to his rice? Am I demeaning or diminishing the indigenous struggle that goes with him fighting for his rice when I make it about skiing, you know? And so it, it's that every time I pose that question, I both learn from the answers and I, I continue to wrestle with my privilege. We wander to the little stream among the river floods And I remember willow trees I remember willow trees I remember willow trees And you remember now We strolled the Spanish marketplace at 90 in the shade. With all the what is an impactful publication you follow or book that you've read? I'll go with book that I read and I'll say Bewilderment by Richard Powers. What are some personal mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with that keep you grounded? All ethical paths lead through hypocrisy. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? Snow and mm-hmm. therefore Sheila Watt-Cloutier, the Inuit activist who, who fights for ice in the Arctic. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Dr. John's work, you can head to www.jhausdurfer.com. I hope that I I got that correct. But (laughs) Dr. John, it's been an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing your time and wealth of wisdom with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Just let yourself be challenged and stretched and unsettled in the way that I hope I let Kamea do for me today. Um, incredibly important not to settle in on one sense of one's own answers. And my hero, one of my heroes, Socrates, definition of wisdom was knowing when you don't know is wisdom. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. 
If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also greatly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is The Awakening Orchestra's I Remember. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 